The title of this morning's talk is Craving for Identity. As you can probably notice, the talk interlocks with the ones I gave on Friday and Saturday. It's meant to bring us face to face to an issue central to all three talks, namely our craving to build up an identity. Two. Therefore, puff up our ego. The previous talks dealt respectively with our craving for certitude and for ownership. Two of the most significant ways to prepare the ground for puffing up our eye, our ego. Today's talk deals with the puffing up itself. And it will also consider, in the second part, what our lives could be like if we don't go that way and choose emptiness instead. A basic step in the puffing up of our ego is to engage in evaluating ourselves. Well, it's true that uh, evaluating our actions and the consequences may also be an appropriate step to take to prevent wrongdoing. Much too often, the primary intent of self-evaluation is not to make sure that what we do has the correct consequences, but actually to check our standing to see if we can rank ourselves as better than others. With that objective in mind, the criteria we select to evaluate ourselves when we choose criteria to evaluate ourselves, we tend to pick up the one in which we stand a good chance to outperform the competition. Therefore, a person endowed with agility and strength will tend to evaluate himself or herself in the world of sports if not in the extreme case of becoming the bully at school. When I was a child, I was a total fiasco in sports. <laughs> I remember we had a session in elementary school where we had to jump over these horse-like things, you know, whatever it is. I, I couldn't do it. Was too short, too something, too. So I never evaluated myself on sports. I was no problem with that. I ignored that area and chose instead the world of scholarship because I was kind of an intellectual, and intellectuals tend to do that. A moneymaker will choose business. 
which all, is all about ownership of things and money. A good looker will privilege sex appeal. And so on. True, as I said a moment ago. In some of these areas, the select, they are also likely to produce outcomes beneficial to our individual and collective well-being. Sure, for example, a successful business is likely to provide benefits for both the owner and its employees. But more often than not, what take over is addiction to success and consideration of the actual benefits falls by the wayside. A grotesque illustration of the dichotomy between success and actual benefits is offered by a film that I saw last month in Rhinebeck at the upstate cinema which is called The Act of Killing. The film is about a genocide that took place in Indonesia in 1965, so long ago, when the military overthrew the government in a coup in which death squads recruited by the military and, and led by a guy called Anwar Congo killed over a million a million civilians, cold-bloodedly, not, not even in military actions. Before the coup, Anwar and his cohorts were a mafia of small-time gangsters, fascinated by the culture of Hollywood. So they used to hang out around the movie theaters in, in the major cities of Indonesia. And, and their business was most, mostly selling tickets in the black market, although they sold all, all kinds of other illegal things as well. The military were wise enough to say, ah, these guys can help us. So they recruited them and gave them the opportunity to act out the violence that they had learned from the movies. And they indeed basked in the glory that came to them because they were glorified by their powers, you know. They were the heroes of their time. And then last year, jo Joshua Oppenheimer, an American-British film director based in Copenhagen, went to Indonesia and approached Anwar and his cohorts, now, of course, much older, with an offer to reenact 
the atrocities for the big screen. They jumped at the occasion. For their part, Joshua Oppenheimer and the other producers of the film were not really interested in documenting what happened had a century ago. What they were interested in was exploring the consciousness of the perpetrators as they reenacted their atrocity for the screen. You know, it's a devastating movie to see. I'm, I'm not sure I can recommend it. When I walked out of, of the movie house, I ran into some good friend, and, but I, I just couldn't talk to her. Just couldn't. I was in the days for at least half an hour. So. Because the movie was not about the actions, it was about what went in the hands of these people. And you could see it. You could see it. Um, you see, the set, the, the set where they made the movie, offered a safe space in which the director c could challenge the, them the perpetrators. And in response, the perpetrators would largely identify what I they, they, they brag what I they did. They demonstrated how to kill people with a wire. Um, but we can also see at times get a glimpse equally horrifying of the inner conflict. In one scene, when the, the set is on, on the scene of some of the atrocities, Anwar is there and he starts vomiting. And for maybe five, ten minutes, he doesn't fully vomit. And then he stops. And he says, it was wrong. In Indonesian, of course, whatever the language is called, but the subtitles say, it was wrong. That's the only glimpse that we get. But you can see that there's part of their mind that's conflicted. Of course, how could it not be? So, in sum, while there may be a correlation between our self-evaluation and the actual benefits that our actions bring about, they can also be, as in this case, a total disconnect between the two. <coughs> After all, and this is my point, the primary concern of self-evaluation is not to ascertain the truth, but building up our self-identity, our ego, 
So, why are we so obsessed with exalting our ego? Because it's an easy way to convince ourselves that our life matters. That we make a lasting, if not irrevocable, impact in the world. We are so afraid of impermanence. At times, we don't even need to inflate, puff up the ego. It's enough to define it. You know, one tiny example of defining ego is those towers that I've used labeled his and hers. <laughs> of course, it's, it's also a commercial trick. doesn't have to carry any weight. But there are the little things that seem to, hey, yeah, this is mine. Well, I, I have my cereal <laughs> labeled his. <laughs> Come have breakfast with us, we'll see. <laughs> it, it's a joke. It is a joke in that case. But uh, anyway, I, I, I joke about myself because I recognize that tendency that I've cultivated at, in an earlier part of my life. The important thing is that there should be no ambiguity about the boundaries that define me as a separate entity. This separation of me from you is the norm of our social world. Unless, unless we opt for the alternative of creating an ego for the collective. Just a couple of months ago, I think it was, I was talking to a dear young man who, like many of his contemporaries, felt unaccomplished, unfulfilled in life. And he said to me that the only alternative he saw to that was to join the Marines. He hasn't done it so far that I know of, but it's there on his plate. In other words, he's considering adopting a collective identity as a substitute for his shaky personal identity. And when adopting a collective identity, instead of puffing up our individual ego, of course, you puff up the collective one, the wegos, I call it, represented by whoever's in command. In the case of the Marines, a commander-in-chief. And as for the commander-in-chief, an easy way for him to puff up his ego, you know, you know, I'm sure, is to go to war. Unless, of course, it eventually flops, as it did for 
G.W. Bush. In sum, we have gotten so addicted to be ruled by the conceit of the ego, individual or collective, that putting it in charge of our lives seems the only way <coughs> to go. But is it? Is there no alternative to filling up our minds with records of, of our individual or collective accomplishments, to justi- achievements to justify our existence. Or more generally, is there no alternative to seeing the world through the filter of identities? Mine, yours, and that of each one who comes our way. Of course there's an alternative. Of course there's an alternative. The alternative is to create space in our habitually cluttered, egocentric mind and to come to inhabit that space. Space in which we can become ready to receive and equally ready to let go. Space that remains free from clutter that is naturally empty. Things come and go. Meditation practice gives us access to such a fluid space, a naturally empty space. The instructions encourage us to focus our attention on objects like the breath, which are not particularly contaminated with the shenanigans of the eye. From that vantage point, we begin to get a taste of what it's like to become aware of experiences that do not emerge from those shenanigans, but from the spontaneous flow of life. That's not to say that emptiness will necessarily prevail throughout our practice. In fact, quite the contrary, very often we experience the opposite. We sit and a barrage of memories, projections and thoughts invades our mind. But that's because we have increased our attention to what's actually happening. Same thing was happening all the time, but we didn't have the attention to recognize it. And so we become aware of the cluttering clutter that's already there. But then eventually, the very awareness of the clutter and of the suffering that it brings about provides us with an inducement to let things go. And when the clutter recedes, at the times when the clutter recedes, we have an opportunity to open up to the empty space in our mind. 
space where there's no stuff, no raw materials to construct our I. No, in fact, to construct anything else with them. We stop become being builders who build all the time stuff, things from stuff. In that state, we are offered the opportunity, whenever it comes, to come in touch with pristine states of sheer joy that can permeate our being. When they come, when they touch us. At other times, we can be touched by a state imbued with a deep sense of equanimity. And we experience that. And these meditative experiences eventually can transform our daily life. And one of the major transformative experiences is that life does not have to be centered around me and mine. And that becomes truly liberating. I should note, however, that there are some meditative meditation practices, particularly those coming from the Hindu tradition, but not all of the Hindu tradition practices as such, and, and it's not to demonize the Hindu tradition in any way. But there are some meditation practices that limit, limit themselves to practicing, practicing concentration on the cushion, and are thus not meant to be exported to daily life. If we follow those practices, we may end up in a split-screen situation. On one screen, the concentration practice, reigning supreme. On the other, our habitual egocentric life as the rule of the land. And the two may never meet. In insight practice, also called vipassana practice, on the other hand, a major practice from the Buddhist tradition, once we have trained the mind into the art of presence by focusing and concentrating our attention, we do concentrate, on, on an actual sensation, sensation, say the breath, then we become ready to open up our focus and practice presence with all that actually comes our way, including both the vicissitudes of life and the underlying emptiness. And so eventually, on the undivided, not divided, not split screen of our mind, 
we can experience the flow of life unimpeded in a space free from partitions. Space free from partitions, free from dichotomies between my ego identity and the world. Or, to put it differently, between the dweller and the dwelling. Space free from partitions, from dichotomies between me and you. Between my territory and your territory. Between each item and the background. And in a concrete example, between the sounds and the space into which the sounds emerge, namely the space of silence in which they emerge. It's, it's not that distinctions are banned or forgiven, or for, forbidden, sorry, forbidden. It's that we simply lose interest in them, as we lose interest in fabricating our own individual or collective separate identity. The distinctions do not become partitions. In the process, we discover the intersection of all things. Me and you only become real as we interact. That's our individual full being needs to be an interaction with something else and somebody else. What reverberates between you and me is just as important as that which reverberates inside me. Love unfolds from those reverberations. More generally, nothing can be isolated from the space it inhabits, or it becomes a fiction. You know, as in, in the stage of a theater or a movie, whatever, there's the action there, and we're watching it. And it's a fiction, and we know that. We love fiction, of course. And at another level, beings cannot be, beings cannot be <laughs> without food. Thoughts cannot emerge without food for thought. Dreams can only thrive in a space where the distinct plot of the dream dissolves. The songs of birds can only thrive 
surrounded by a space of silence. And the same goes for music, of course. And for our words, they can only thrive when they emerge in the midst of silence, if spoken, or the blank, blank page in writing, or the featureless spaces in our mind when we receive them. Or else they become cheetah chatter, prittle prattle, yakety yak. <laughs> okay, so before my words become yakety yak, <laughs> let me close with some verses from Robert Kelly. Some of you may know of him. He's a poet, a very significant poet, who teaches at Bard. He's been teaching at Bard for, I think, 40 years or so. I forgot, but they were celebrating that recently. And this is from a very recent poet of his, uh, yet unpublished, called What I Really Want to Say. Who are all these people eating their lunch in the middle of a poem and looking at each other and wondering what it all means? And then they come to the end of a line on the side. Well enough of this, it's time to go home. Home to their room. Home to their own place. He was reading this in, in, in the garden where people were still drinking their coffee. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. <laughs> What I really wanted to say was that the word room really means space. Like in German, Lebensraum. Lebensraum space to live in. Is there room for living in this poem you are writing? O oh, poet, O oh, composer, are you leaving space in your music for someone to live in? Really and truly be alive inside your music not just some background noise not just some sad background life while you drone on and so what I really hope is that this word both of Robert Kelly and of myself have contributed to create this space, a Lebensraum, 
into which we can all come truly alive. Thank you. Let's uh, create a space of silence for a few minutes.